Today's episode is sponsored by Itential. Itential is network and cloud automation. The Itential platform makes it easy for you to gain insight into your entire network infrastructure. Bring your network into compliance through remediation, automatically prevent non-compliant changes from making their way into the network, gain the confidence you need to automate your network safely. Know your network. Automate your network. Find out more at itential.com slash packetpushers. Welcome to Packet Pushes Heavy Networking. Now, for people who've been joining us for a while, you'll know that we present an occasional series called Future of Networking, where we talk to leaders in the industry, well, about what the future holds for networking. Pretty self-referential. And today I'm talking with Bruce Davey. He's a veteran of software-defined networking. He was there at the start of the SDN movement in the early days with Casado and McEwen and the other people around and Schenker. Uh, he's a graduate of Stanford and I believe actually a professor at Stanford. We'll find out more about him in a minute. And he has been a senior player across the industry for SDN and networking more broadly for a couple of decades now. So welcome to the show, Bruce. How have you been? I'm good. Um, do you want to correct my uh, my CV as we go? Of course, yeah. All right. So I'm a graduate of Edinburgh University, mm -hmm. which is quite a long way from Stanford, and I was a visiting professor at MIT. Okay. But you were involved with SDN right back in its, in, its genesis. Indeed. I, I'd say I was not quite as early as, you know, Martina, Nick and Scott, but I was there pretty early. Right. And then you were part of the Nasira, what later became NSX, that whole journey to software-defined networking, including the virtual switching angle. Absolutely. Now, before that, were you involved in networking hardware design and software development, or was it more, you're more of an academic type person before you got into the industry? Well, no, I, yeah, I was definitely, I was on both the hardware and software side. So my networking journey started in 1988 when I went to work for Bellcore, which at that point had only recently been spun out from Bell Labs. Mm. And so my first real job as a networking person was building some sort of experimental research prototype hardware to develop gigabit networking, which in the 1980s, gigabit networking was a crazy idea <laughs> because why would anybody need a network that went that fast? People and still so say I that actually, today. You might. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I worked on I worked on some of the early ATM, mm. uh, particularly um, what would, what would actually turn out to be one of the first gigabit NIC card designs was something that I worked on in in that project. Yeah. And then after a few years there, I went over to Cisco, where I was really doing protocol development, uh, and you know was. I guess it's interesting to, to me that you introduced me as an SDN person because I think a lot of people think of me as that MPLS person. So you know, well, I, I was, have a fairly I was, regular listeners will know I have a fairly poor opinion of MPLS. Generally, I think it was a bad idea done badly, but it was necessary because it was all we could do because it was just a reinvention of VLAN tags. Yeah, well, we'll we should probably talk more about the future than the past. But yeah. I, I would say MPLS was you know it was the thing that I worked on when I joined Cisco in '95. And it was enormously successful in getting VPNs to be something that could be done at scale. And it was also pretty successful for traffic engineering. But in the end, they were the best things we could do at the time, which yeah. I think is what you just said. But then we also have found better things to do subsequently, including you know things that actually now where SDN has kind of done both of those jobs better, I think, in terms of SDN-based traffic engineering and SDN-based uh, VPNs. But... I think I, I had a great no, time. No, no, I definitely agree. At the time, we were talking about hard-coded circuits using time division multiplexing, T1s, E1s, E3s, 
and we had to to get the industry to move. We basically had to not make it so different that it was unacceptable to the incumbents. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like the, the in my view of the world, the way MPLS really got off the ground was that AT&T was selling frame relay circuits so fast they couldn't keep up with the demand mm. and they came to us at Cisco and said, do you think you, you could do this in a way that was perhaps a little bit more scalable? And really Yakov Rector and Eric Rosen came up with the solution that was MPLS VPNs, which was you know, significantly more scalable than uh, than Frame Relay, and that became a mm. probably multi billion dollar revenue stream for Cisco. So there's a key learning in there, and the thing about Frame Relay was that even though you were defining virtual circuits, whether they were SVCs or PVCs, the state the the state information was held in every device for a virtual circuit. And the key learning, as I understand at least, was that MPLS VLAN said, well, we can reduce the state information to a much smaller level, so that the network in the core network could scale. Yeah, at, at a very high level, provisioning VPN services using Frame Relay was sort of an N-squared problem that you needed to build enough circuits to connect up a whole lot of sites. So if you had N sites to connect, you're going to need about N-squared circuits. And that was an N-squared provisioning cost, and that's why AT&T couldn't keep up with the demand. Mm-hmm. And when we moved to MPLS, we could make it an order N problem. So you know, effectively made it something that was much more scalable and and broadly speaking, I think with SD-WAN, we've now gone to the point where it's it's still order N, but it's like the constant cost of doing it at every site is much lower. Sometimes I look at SD-WAN and think it's like what cloud networking is to CPUs, to servers and compute. SD-WAN is for long haul networking in the sense that the internet is effectively a cloud network or an, or an off-premise network. I mean, the, the interesting thing for me is... So, you know, so I've been working on writing networking textbooks for about close to 30 years, I think. Mm. And uh, we used to use clouds to represent networks way back in the 90s before anybody had come up with the idea of talking about cloud computing or cloud networking. Yeah. Just the, the idea that the network was a cloud was kind of quite baked into how we thought about networks in the 90s. And yeah, the, the SD-WAN idea is you've got this big cloud of connectivity and you actually don't need to go and manage it in quite the same detailed way that either... Frame Relay or MPLS did, you can sort of say, well, I just need a bunch of tunnels across that cloud and I can specify that to my SDN controller hmm. and it goes and makes it happen for you. Which is not functionally different to Frame Relay or ATM or E3s of the era. They were basically circuits across the top of some underlay that the carrier did for you. Exactly. I, I mean, I think the, the, what I think is sort of fundamental here is that people neglect in networking people often neglect the cost of operations. Yeah. And this is why I think MPLS, in my experience, was a great collaboration between vendors like Cisco and operators like AT&T because, you know, they really understood the, the operational costs and they sort of shared their pain with us and we came up with solutions that made their life better. Mm. And one of the things which I think often holds networking people back is we look at an idea and say, well, that's a, that idea has already been tried before, so it's no point. But you know, the idea that something similar to what you've seen before doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad idea. It may just mean something has changed that makes that idea that used to be impractical practical. And, and so I think that's, yeah. that's exactly what SD-WAN has done. And I, you know, well, when that's we what doing... I think with MPLS is that it took the idea of VLAN tags, that if I had a tag, and then adapted it to a WAN use case instead of a LAN use case. But the differentiator was that VLAN had no the VLAN tags had no control plane. 
the standard just exactly. defined the frame format. And we ended up with a manually controlled v operational platform where you had to manually configure the VLANs and attempts to make a unified control plane to, to like, like the VLAN trunking protocol, for example, ended up cre creating more problems than it solved. And operationally, it was very difficult to scale VLANs. But yeah. the fundamental concept I've always maintained is that MPLS is just VLAN tags for WANs. Is that wrong? Yeah, I, Am I wrong? Well, you know I, 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 I don't think it's wrong, but I think it's, it, it, it does kind of miss the key point because mm. what what I think was really powerful about MPLS VPNs was not MPLS at all. It was actually the use of BGP to configure the, the overlay. And yeah, well, BGP was actually used for more than just the tags. It was actually used to configure endpoints and to share state information and end-to-end -end connectivity. But that was all lessons exactly. learned from VLANs. Yeah, so I, I, I kind of thought one of the mistakes we maybe made in sort of the way we described MPLS VPNs was to call them MPLS VPNs. Because if you look at the RFC that defines MPLS VPNs, which is originally RFC 2547, you would, you know, the, the title I believe is MPLS BGP VPNs. Mm -hmm. And ultimately BGP is, is where all the heavy lifting is and MPLS is just an encapsulation. And I think that's the that's the thing which is missing. If you say, well, MPLS was just VLANs. It's like, well, VLANs are a form of encapsulation, so is MPLS. But what made MPLS successful in that environment was the use of a BGP control plane to set up a VPN overlay. So let me ask you this question because we're talking about MPLS. Does MPLS have a long-term future? If we move more and more towards the concept of public WAN, that is the internet, or the internet as a cloud bandwidth service, does the need for MPLS in the telco networks decline and even go away over time? Do they actually need to sustain slice services with different qualities? Is that a viable thing going forward? I tend to think MPLS is is going to go away. But, you know, the funny thing about networking is how technologies hang around much longer than you might expect. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure there's still a bunch of X25 out there. And, and so I think... To my taste, most of the problems that we solve with MPLS have better alternatives today. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the telcos are not going to throw away their MPLS services overnight. But yeah, you know, at, a, at a simplistic level, MPLS did two things well: VPNs and traffic engineering. And both of those today are done done better by other other means. Done better by looking at the whole end. So let's get to the. I want to get to what you're doing now. You're promoting a, a, a view of networking called the systems approach. And you've set up, you've published a textbook online, two textbooks actually, at systemsapproach.org, which is kind of what, and I've been reading through it. And I've been recommending this textbook to uh, when I'm contacted by academics who say, what sort of would you recommend for student reading and stuff? And I've been recommending this to them. And I've read it, of course, as part of preparing for this. So let's, let's lean away from the MPLS story and lean into, what is the vision that you're approaching with systems approach? So, yeah, we've got a company. It's really me and Larry Peterson, and it's called Systems Approach LLC. And we set this up just about a year ago as a sort of a home for doing a whole lot of educational projects. And, you know, Larry and I did our first textbook together back in 1995, and it was called computer networking systems approach. Uh, so that, that book is now in its sixth edition. And, you know, we've been doing this for a while. And so I'll, I'll start by just saying, like, what is the systems approach? And then I'll talk a bit more about what we're doing in terms of what our day job is now. Mm. So this, the idea of the systems approach 
is, you know, if you, if you go to a, a certain set of academic conferences, you'll find people who call themselves systems people. You'll find, you know, the um, Symposium on Oper Operating Systems Principles or SOSP is a big systems conference. At, at a conference like SIGCOM, which is, the, you know, sort of the big networking academic conference, you'll find a few systems people. And so there's people who think of themselves as systems people, but it's one of those things that's a little bit hard to define. And so what I think of in the context of the systems approach to networking is it's a big picture view of networks. And I'll sort of contrast it against a, a different view, which is the optimize your box view of networks. Right. And so, you know, if I was, say, an expert in, in say, wireless networking, I could devote my whole life to making a really, really good point-to-point -point wireless link. But that wouldn't necessarily, you know, lead to a good overall network. And so what I think we've tried to encourage people to do when we look at the systems approach to networking is that it's a big picture system. You've got to worry about applications, about link layers, about transport protocols, about routing, and you've got to look at how all those pieces interact. And in networking, the traditional way that networking has been taught is to divide everything up into layers and tell people to think about one layer at a time. And so that's quite a helpful way to learn about networks it as they exist. It gives you a exist. mental model for putting together a lot of disparate technologies, but it's not workable in real life because the technologies shift. So, yeah. for example, you might define TCP as layer four, HTTP as layer five, and then HTTPS as what, six, seven? Right. And, and I mean, that's a good example. So if you look at, you know, how HTTP works today, you know, first of all, it's a security layer that sits between HTTP and TCP now. So, you know, we've the neither of them really maps well onto the the seven layer model. Mm. But even more important than that is we've sort of had thirty years of running HTTP over TCP, and we've now actually realised that it's it's actually quite a bad fit. And so, with all due credit to the inventors of the World Wide Web when they designed HTTP to run over TCP, they didn't know much about what TCP was doing under the covers. That's what the layering model tells you. It's like, well, you can forget about what's going on in that lower layer. Yeah. You've got an application. I can you, make a request. TCP yeah. will guarantee it to be delivered. Why would I bother validating that a request was made if someone else is going to do it for me? Exactly. And so it didn't take long for people to see problems with that. So we got HTTP 1.1 came out pretty quickly because of all the shortcomings of, you know, the, the old version of HTTP over TCP 1.0 was you open a connection for every single object and then close it again. And that worked really poorly. And so HTTP 1.1 introduced persistent connections. And, and so that improved the performance and then, you know, go fast forward 20 years and people started designing HTTP version 3 to run over a completely new transport protocol called Quick. And Which the reason that Quick exists- Which hasn't taken off as much as people thought. I thought it was a lay down was there, but it turns out that it's probably another five years before the implementations work properly. Well, it's so hard to get these things off the ground, I think. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I've just spent a fair bit of time reading through all the Quick RFCs, all sort of 300 pages of them. <laughs> yeah. And- it is, it is an absolute triumph of protocol design, in my opinion, because they thought very carefully about how the layers interact. And that's what I, kind of what I wanted to get to is thinking about cross-layer interactions is a good example of systems thinking. Yeah. That you can't simply say, 
oh, I've, I've got an application protocol and TCP will just make sure my application requests get through. What you actually need to do is to say, well, if I'm really concerned about performance, I probably shouldn't be opening too many TCP connections all at once. And I shouldn't spend all of that extra overhead opening them and closing them again. And then I shouldn't wait three round trip times to set up the security association. And there's a whole bunch of things that happen across the layers. And it's sort of taken 20 or 30 years of running HTTP across the internet to figure out these problems. But the system's approach is to say, well, what I really want is for the World Wide Web to work well. And that actually means I've got to redesign both HTTP and TCP and the security piece that sits between them and do it as a kind of integrated design. And that, to me, it sort of encapsulates the system's approach. I think the other thing that's happened here more broadly is we've seen all the other protocols fail away, fall away and we're almost left with DNS, SSH and HTTP. Whereas 10 years ago or 20 years ago, we had all these different layer two protocols. You know, we had FTDI, Token Ring, ArcNet, and the, the least popular one, Ethernet, except it was cheap and nasty, and so it won. Uh, and then we had all of these Layer 3 protocols, IPX, AppleTalk, Banyan, Vines, you know, and the one that won in the end was IP for various reasons, not because it was cheap and nasty, but probably because it was hard and difficult and consultants like to sell it. I don't know. But I think it was the only one that was actually universal to all the different platforms. Microsoft wouldn't adopt AppleTalk. And Novell wouldn't talk to, wouldn't adopt other people's protocols, but they could all agree that IP. Is that a valid assumption? And, when, and now, once we standardized on all of those, we could move up the stack. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think IP won in large part because it was universal. It was the fact that it would run over anything. And, and like, I remember having this explained to me when I was working on ATM, and uh, Tom Lyons from Sun Microsystems at the time said, Yeah, well, you know, we may have ATM to the desktop, but it's still going to run IP over ATM. Yeah. And you know, in the end, ATM to the desktop didn't happen, but it was true. We did run IP over ATM. And in the end, like ATM just became another link layer and then eventually became yeah. a sort of you know interesting but historical But ATM footnote. was intended to be a, an IP. Yeah. yeah. But the, the, at that, what I think Tom was the first person who made me realize this was that, in fact, IP had already won at that point. This would yeah, have been sort of early 90s. IP was already so entrenched as the uniform protocol that connected everything that you could introduce new applications on top of it, new link layers under it, but nothing was going to displace it as the, you know, as the uniform layer for connecting everything together. And, that's, and there's a universal lesson in here. The thing about IP is it had none of the features of other protocols, none of the name discovery, service discovery, like IPX had SPX, which allow you to discover services. Uh, servers could come up on the network and announce themselves and people would discover those services. You could find printers, you could find servers without having to implement a name server. And Apple Talk had a similar capability. NetBIOS had a much more sophisticated capability in that area. ATM had a whole service discovery piece in its protocol suite. And yet everybody went like, yeah, but that's all too hard. Let's just go with the dumb stuff over here. And then they had to find that they had to reinvent name resolution or service discovery through DNS. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of why IP was successful was because it was so simple, it could run over everything. Yeah. Uh, and I think that ultimately was, was, was what made it successful. But then you had to go and solve all those other problems. <laughs> yeah. Every time you take the simple, there's a whole bunch of problems. But maybe that's the right way to do it. Maybe the right way is because ATM came with a whole bunch of stuff that you didn't want and 
I know this is kind of like a history lesson, but it is the thing about the future was that a lot of those protocols of that era included directory lookups and, you know, service registration and deregistration. And it turns out that the complexity of implementing those was not a burden that people wanted to take on. And so now we have DNS, TCP IP and HTTPS and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I would say in some sense, this is a sort of an outcome of the the end-to-end argument, which is that you don't want to build something into the network if it's done better at the end system, because at that point, you've now put a cost into the network that's only valuable to, to the network and only valuable to the applications that need that service, whereas putting it at the endpoints means it can be done by the applications that need it and not by the applications that don't need it. It's, fair. it's interesting to look back at it and just realize how much of this is, a uh, you know, we've stumbled towards the lowest common denominator and ended up with the minimum viable network. And that's what we run globally. Is that a viable statement in your view or is that just me? Well, I'm a pretty big fan of the the TCP IP architecture. Like I, I think it was actually quite a brilliant design. Mm. And I think, you know, I, I go back and read the Dave Clark papers on the internet architecture and the the end-to-end argument. I read those papers like probably once a year because they continue to have good insight into the right way to build networks and protocols. So I, I don't think it was just dumb luck that we ended up with IP sort of being the winner. No, I don't. Um, I don't not that, not that everything that. was perfect, but I think yeah. it was actually a really well-principled design. Yeah, and I am a big fan of the end-to-end nature of TCP IP. That is, it doesn't want to know what's in the network and that decouples the endpoint from the network. When bandwidth was limited, that was a problem. And that was what ATM and other protocols were trying to solve is when there wasn't enough bandwidth, how do you ration it out? And the secret to TCP IP is that it just works better and better with the more bandwidth you give it. Yeah, that's that's certainly proven to be true. And gosh, think about all those people who devoted their careers to working on QoS. Well, not just QoS, but cross signaling and end-to-end and state transmission and, you know, network slicing and all that sort of stuff, which was, you know, it got us from where we were to where we are, but I'm not convinced that there's a long-term future. So coming back to the systems approach, you're suggesting that people who are studying networking should think of the entire network as a system. But one of the things I know in the textbook is that you focus very much on the pieces that make up the system rather than the system itself. Well, I would say we, you know, we do start from sort of what's the problem you're trying to solve. And I think that's a, that's a kind of a key idea in systems thinking is you don't say, oh, I need a really good high-speed link layer. You say, oh, I want to build a global network. And so we sort of start from that end of the problem space. Mm-hmm. And then we we go from there and say, okay, well, if you if you want that, then you need the following things. And then we go from there say, oh, well, that's going to require a certain set of components, then you go and build the components. So, of course, we tell people these are the things which have been built over the years. Like, you know, a networking textbook kind of has to explain, you know, how things like, you know, Ethernet framing and collision avoidance and that sort of also collision detection, those sort of things, you know, have to be explained. But we we do take the principle of you're trying to solve a kind of big system problem and, and this is the way to think. That's that's Essentially, that's our philosophy. And you work your way through quite a few things that I don't normally see covered in any sort of training curricula. One of them that I, I liked to see you talk about is the end-to-end protocols, like idea of that UDP is a demultiplexer, that TCP is a reliable byte stream, and then you point out that HTTP is a federated protocol in the sense that it's becoming the new 
choke point. So when you create a, a system like BGP, every system in the network has to be federated using BGP. You must conform to the federation rules or you can't participate in the federation, right? And what we're seeing is what BGP is to the internet, HTTP has now become for the data network, for uh, for the the control for signaling between applications, the waste used to be at IP. That is, it used to be the common protocol was IP and TCP, and we used to put the words two two words together TCP IP. But increasingly, the internet is saying, "Well, I don't even care about TCP IP. I just want to talk HTTP." Yeah, that that I agree with. I think we've definitely talked about the idea that HTTP has become the new narrow waste, and. It is, you're getting back to something you said earlier, there was this idea that, you know, when we were both starting out our careers, there were all these application protocols, you know, we probably remember using FTP and Gopher and Waze and a whole lot of other things to get access to information across uh, across the internet, whereas at some point in the sort of late 90s, HTTP started to emerge as the dominant way of moving information across the internet. And so it has definitely turned into, yeah, HTTP is the way things happen. Even I think WebRTC is this idea that even real-time communication is going to move on to HTTP. I thought I had already, but okay. I didn't think yeah. there was too many people doing, because getting uh, real-time legacy protocols like that across the internet is becoming increasingly difficult because of middle boxes. Yeah. Again, it's, it's sort of an interesting thing about Quick. getting back to that topic was that Quick said, well, we're going to do a new transport protocol, but the only way it's going to fly across the internet is if we can run it across something that the internet already supports. So thankfully it doesn't run over HTTP, but it does run over UDP because you know, we know the middle boxes will only let UDP and TCP get through. And they do strange things to it. <laughs> as it passes through. I have a bit of a bugbear about Quas, and people keep going on at me and saying, Greg, you're wrong. Quas is absolutely the, the preeminent application. And I would say that as bandwidth increases, it becomes less relevant. And until something comes along to consume bandwidth faster than we can generate it, then congestion control and quality of service becomes less valuable or pointless overall. Do you disagree with that? Well, I think I want to distinguish between congestion control and quas because so I've just finished a first draft of a book we're doing on congestion control. So I definitely don't think that's that's <laughs> worthless. But the interesting thing about congestion control is, you know, there's congestion in the internet all over the place at the moment. Just look at how much traffic Netflix is sending around on any given you know, evening and you can see why we still need congestion control. But the point of quas, I think, you know, uh, there was actually a workshop that I went to. I reckon it was about 2003 and it was called RIP Quas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the conceit was that Quas was dead and we should stop working on it. And I went sort of to give a vigorous defence because, again, this is, you know, almost 20 years ago, but there was enough Quas deployment to make me feel I hadn't wasted my time working on it. And by the way, <laughs> I was sort of taking a dig at myself when I was saying those poor people who worked on QoS. The point about Quas is it only makes sense if bandwidth is scarce. Yes. And, you know, increasingly that's not the case, but there's always going to be places where bandwidth is scarce. And, you know, one of the areas, if we, I think we should start maybe getting more forward-looking, I think one of the areas where the bandwidth is going to continue to be scarce is at the edge. That mm. whether it's your crappy broadband provider or whether it's the fact that you're on a cellular network where spectrum is so expensive that it's impossible to to give lots of it to everybody. 
there's still going to be cases where you need to worry about how you're going to allocate bandwidth. And do we need the thousands of different queuing algorithms that were written up in academic papers over the years? Probably not. Mm. But do we need some way to decide, you know, when you're trying to figure out how to allocate bandwidth between an application that's very latency sensitive versus one that isn't but needs a lot of bandwidth? Is there a, a good way to do that allocation? You know, we do need those things. and But are even- we doing those inside of, like I know, for example, inside of Quick, they're talking about doing bandwidth allocation inside of the Quick protocol, not down in the network. Yeah. Yes. I, so I think that's, that's a good distinction. So I was actually thinking of Leadbat as a good example as another protocol that that emerged as a way to say, you know, you're trying to do a software update and four gigabytes is coming out from your software vendor of choice. Meanwhile, you'd like to still be able to do your Zoom call. Mm. And so rather than saying, let's do a fancy queuing algorithm to separate out the Zoom traffic from the software update, Leadbat just says, oh, I'll back off. Yeah. You know, if, if yeah. oh, there's a congestion, let me get out of the way. And that works fine because I know that I'm being used by something that's not that latency sensitive. And, and so those kind of things, again, it's sort of the end-to-end -end principle. If you can get away with doing things at the ends rather than doing them in the network, that's probably going to be a win. Yeah, and it's the low-cost way of doing it too because if you start implementing queuing algorithms in the network, all devices in the path have to cooperate or federate to be able to make the promise. And, as soon as, and one of the things we've learned consistently over the last 30 years is that every time we put something in the network device, the network becomes unstable, unscalable, and effectively unreliable. Yeah. And again, it gets back to that, that issue of how hard is, is it to manage something? You know, what's the operational cost of having something? I think the best experience I ever had with QoS was when I was working at Cisco, I had a nice little Cisco, you know, small office, home office router mm. that, that sat in my, in my home office. And it did a really nice job of making sure that my voice over IP kept working while I was sending, you know, multi-gigabyte PowerPoint files across email. And it was just a very, very simple thing, but it didn't require any coordination between 20 different routers. It was just the one router sitting on the bottleneck link getting out of my house. Yeah, there are identifiably guaranteed. But we're even, even today, though, that's different now. We're seeing voice and even video become like we've managed to survive with video conferencing over the networks we have, and they have, by and large, worked. We didn't need yeah, cross and, and again, for Zoom it's, it's got a, or WebEx or Teams to be available to the to the whole world. Yeah, and it's got a lot to do with you know more availability of bandwidth. People tend to complain about how poor the uh, the broadband is in Australia, but I've still got twenty five megabits out of my house, and I, I, I do remember when I was working on gigabit networks. You know, almost 30 years ago, mm. thinking, I don't really need a gigabit, but I'd be pretty happy if I could reliably get one megabit. <laughs> and uh, so now I reliably get about 20 megabits and yeah, you know, Zoom works pretty well. I did my first Quas network on a 64K frame relay network around Australia. And yeah, and that was probably, a, a, that was a place where Quas probably made quite a big difference. It did. And we were actually using a real-time protocol and using reserved bandwidth, RSVP to signal the bandwidth so that we could release it so the print jobs could get through before they timed out. That was where I learned an awful lot about QOS because implementing RSVP for QOS over IP over frame relay was incredibly difficult. And that's why I remain to this day scarred by and traumatised by the whole experience. 
We pause the episode for some thinking about end-to-end automation across all your networks with sponsor Itential. I have long advocated for simplifying the network to help make automation work well, and I I have lost the battle. Your, your network probably consists of physical hardware, virtualized network functions, the internet as WAN, and VPN tunnels, or direct connects, or both to multiple public clouds. So... How's your automation initiative working out? Maybe not great. What if you had an automation tool to help bring order to the chaos? Itential's automation platform makes complicated networks like yours more manageable. The Itential platform offers you insight into your entire infrastructure. So you lean into Itential and it's going to help you quickly detect non-compliant devices and then target them for remediation. And and all this works if your network devices offer a modern API or are CLI only. And the big idea here, feel in control. Be confident about what your network actually is with the Itential platform doing the heavy lifting for you. And with that baseline, you can trust that the automation processes you build with the Itential platform will deliver the network state your organization requires. Itential also has a configuration manager tool, which lets you integrate configuration validation right into your automation processes. And this lets you take a step back from knowing the nuance of every networking component you're responsible for. You get operational consistency. You ask Itential to execute the configuration task and Itential makes sure it gets done across both your on-prem gear and cloudy virtual infrastructure. All right, so Itential does a lot, and so maybe you're worried that Itential is going to require 19 months of training and a team of rockstar developers to make it work. If you're thinking that you're missing a key point here, Itential is meant to be easy to use. For instance, Itential's low-code automation studio provides drag-and-drop network automation plus an open library of pre-built automation workflows with integrations to any IT system. End-to-end automation across all your networks, simplifying network automation for everyone on your team. Know your network. Automate your network. Itential. Find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. That's itential.com slash packet pushers. And now back to today's episode. So I want to look more into the future, Bruce, and think about where networking is going. I'm going to kick off the discussion with functions as a service, or if you like, network as a service. We're seeing this idea of people building overlays over the internet. Now, sometimes that's called SD-WAN, sometimes that's called SASE. And what we're also seeing is that people are not only using SD-WAN as middle boxes, but starting to instantiate a whole bunch of virtual network functions inside of that. What's your view on that as the way forward? Is that something that we're going to see, like just say, well, the network is a cloud and I need to build an overlay over the top of that. And that's going to be some sort of functions as a service or network as a service. I certainly think that overlays have proven over and over and over again to be a really successful tool for getting new things deployed. Mm. And so whether it's, you know, MPLS was a form of overlay, you know, the network virtualization that we did in Asira was a form of overlay, and so, yeah, SD-WAN lets you build overlays really easily. I, I think there's no doubt that's a, that's one of those building blocks that's going to keep on being used in lots of different ways. I haven't looked closely at how people are doing things like cloud networking these days, but, you know, clearly that's a big business. Like how do you, you get the necessary networking functions between, you know, an Amazon cloud and a Azure mm. cloud or something? And I think all those things are going to drive people doing some form of overlays where the sort of the necessary networking functions can be dropped in wherever they where, wherever they need to be. And I guess sort of related to this, I really did have a sort of strong conversion experience through the decade or so that I worked on SDN of seeing how much more networking could be done in software. And I think to me, that's probably the sort of the biggest shift from where I was 
10, 20 years ago to where we are today, where I think the ability to quickly deploy new networking services using software is is you know, a huge shift in how we think about networks. Does that, one of the things that was good in networking was that we didn't move fast in one aspect, <laughs> right? And we had time to get used to things before it would change. And one of the the failures of servers and storage to a large extent was that they would often be iterating and you'd end up with a fairly substantial amount of complexity in those systems. Look at Windows, for example, a hodgepodge of security vulnerabilities these days. And they took all of that and just put it into Azure, right? It's So there's two sides to that coin. There's a part of if we move in a federated system, very little can actually change. So there's plenty of time for everybody participating in that federation to understand, and that's how we cope with different levels of competency. There are telcos who find, you know, spelling BGP is very difficult for them, and we've got other telcos who would actually like to rewrite BGP and adapt it for a new universe or something like that. Do you feel that there's a tension there? Well, I must say I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about the sort of inability of networks to innovate as a virtue the way you just did. Um, so I'll say <laughs> that probably proves you're a very, very hardcore networking person yeah. if you can view sort of ossification as a virtue. I'm trying to gild <laughs> that lily. I'm trying to put, I'm, tr- I'm trying, to, trying to, you know, sprinkle some glitter on that turd. Yeah. But, I mean, it's true um, though, right? We have a lot of people out there who know exactly how to operate the infrastructure that they have because it hasn't changed. They've had enough time to absorb and to learn and to work out what works. That's that's absolutely true, and you know I I, th- I think probably the same is is true for the people who are really good at doing things like you know maintaining you know sort of the the polished lenses on on the, the cameras that we used to use before we all had had iPhones. Yeah, the DSLRs. Um, yeah. Mm. But I sort of feel like there's a, a real problem in the networking world that things did not change nearly as quickly, and in particular not changing the operational model that the, you know, the operational model for networking for so long was you spent a few years getting really good at understanding this fairly arcane CLI. And once you'd done that, your career was pretty much made because you were one of the elite wizards who could, you know, Mm -hmm. configure your router by one of the couple of big vendors to do exactly what it needed to do. And you could figure out when somebody asked you to implement some policy, you could figure out which five boxes to go and touch, which magical incantation to do. And if you were a wizard, you could get it done. But the idea that that's a good way of building systems, to me, it's the same idea that like the right way to to program computers is to toggle the switches on the front panel. (laughs) I don't disagree with you. I'm just highlighting the fact that the reality is the way, one way that we've managed to contain the operational complexity, coming right the way back to your starting point, where you say we've never done a good job of focusing on the operational aspects of the networking. One way we've done that is by just not innovating and mm. not changing. Yeah. And and so, you know, obviously I've got a I've got a strong opinion about about SDN having, you know, been heavily involved in it, but the point at which I really started to believe that SDN was the right horse to back was when I heard Scott Schenker talking about it in about 2011 and he was talking about the fact that networking had failed to produce good abstractions, unlike most other disciplines of computer science. And, you know, the idea that when you wanted to get a network to do something, you had to map your high-level intent down onto a very complicated map of all these different boxes and how to configure them. And that, you know, again, the analogy was, in my mind, like, 
imagine if we still had to figure out how physical memory mapped onto virtual memory and that every time you wanted to go and you know, store an object, you would go and figure out where exactly are those bits going to get it laid out in physical memory. To me, that's where we are, you know, have tended to be with networking. And what SDN did was to say, now actually you can go much more to specifying your intent. You can say these two ports should be able to communicate under the following circumstances. Mm. And you say that to your SDN controller and ideally it's not a human that says that, it's actually another piece of software that says it. And then you, know, you call the API and the SDN system goes and figures out how to implement that policy by going and poking whatever forwarding plane elements it needs to. So to me, that was the big shift in networking that started in you know, circa 2010. Yeah, I don't dispute that. And I think the tension there, of course, is because we had the operational stability as a way of coping with the complexity in the networking, that made the adoption of SDN so incredibly painful. So the transition from what I call finger-defined networking to software-defined networking and now to an intent-based networking and now intent with modeling is the fact that that people don't have the expectation of rapid change, and that is a problem. It, but at the same time, the federated model that we have also prevents a lot of change. Yes. I mean, I, th- I, th- like I don't hold out great hope that BGP is going to be retired anytime soon because I feel like... It embeds so much of the business of the internet that the way ISPs talk to each other is with BGP. Mm. But I, I do have more optimism about the way individual networks can be improved. So, you know, a, a pretty simple example would be Google looked at how they wanted to do traffic engineering. They looked at what was available and they said, you know, we can do better than this. We're going to do it with a centralized controller. And the funny thing for me about when Google started doing that for uh, for you know for SDN based traffic engineering, and actually Microsoft did the same thing. Hmm. They picked up on an idea that we had recognised at Cisco. We fully believed that central control was a better way to do traffic engineering. Mm-hmm. We just had no way to get it into the hands of our customers because we could not imagine our customers taking on board a central controller because every customer that we dealt with understood that networks were handed down from God as these fully distributed things that were configured by people with CCIEs. Yeah, we had people, I've seen people who were senior figures in the IETF saying the only documentation on the network is a running config. Yeah. You know, uh, they they couldn't imagine anything different. it It was hugely powerful to see that this idea of central control for traffic engineering, which as I say, we knew it was a good idea. We just couldn't figure out how to actually implement it. It could be implemented by the the big players like Google and Microsoft. And honestly, any ISP who wants to do it today can do it. And you know, that's that to me was a huge step forward. And it required a big shift away from the traditional way of thinking about networks. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching AWS come up with this way to scale multi-tenancy inside of its infrastructure and being boggled about some of the ideas that they were coming out with. And and thinking that how could we apply those to the enterprise. And then it sort of turned out that we're sort of in a situation now where that's fine for Google or that's fine for AWS because they're building mainframes, not systems that I can that I can adapt, if that makes sense. And yeah, I think... I don't yeah, look to the cloud providers anymore as an inspiration for networking because the networking that they're doing is so radically different and so isolated and they're building their own model of federation that only interconnects to the, to the wider network network infrastructure at a certain set of key points but what they're doing is so so radically different that it doesn't translate yes and i think it's you know it, 
there's a lot of players out there who'd like to be like Google, but it's very, very hard to be like Google or Amazon unless you are at that, operating at that scale. I, th- I think this is where I see some of the technologies like SD-WAN is sort of, they're, they're democratizing the access to SDN because you don't need to be that sophisticated to adopt technologies like that. And again, it's one of the reasons why I think overlays are so important is because you can deploy an overlay without having to go and change every single box in your network. And so yeah. as, you know, as long as you've got adequate connectivity, you can still do something innovative without having to replace everything. And well, there's so, so much innovation in networking now. Like come back to SD-WAN and consider how many years we've been putting you know, highly customized routers at the edge of the network. And now all of a sudden we have SD-WAN, which is doing dynamic load sharing and load splitting over multiple types of networks, not even some with guarantee, some without. Like imagine I've spoken to people who are running their entire networks over 5G for a bunch of sites because that's the only connectivity they can get. That idea that you can do it over 5G, which is a very unpredictable, unreliable, bandwidth not guaranteed, uncrossable type network and seeing people just adopt it with SD-WAN and environments and then adding security functions on top of it with the SASE stuff and saying like, well, let's put a firewall at the edge of the network. Let's put a proxy there. Let's do content inspection. Let's do logging. Let's send those logs off. That's such an, an, an enormous amount of transformation. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the, the other thing which I'm quite excited about in terms of what could happen going forward is as we start to see this idea that you can centrally control the network and have an API where you specify what you want instead of having to go and configure a lot of boxes, it becomes more realistic to think that we can actually prove the network's doing what it should. And and so, you know, I wrote a piece recently about network verification, and I think it's pretty early days for this, but, you know, the analogy I made is that chip verification has been going on for about 30 years and, you know, nobody ships piece of silicon without having very high confidence that it's going to work correctly. Whereas people routinely go and make a network change at two o'clock on Sunday morning only to discover that it was horribly wrong and they have to roll yeah. it back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I really like the idea that, again, networking is a bit of a laggard compared to some other disciplines of computer science, but that we could start having very high confidence that we're going to make a change to the network and we will know that it's going to do the thing we intended as opposed to we'll try it and figure out if we have to roll it back. Which is weird because networking is well fitted to modeling because yes. the elements of the network are fixed. They don't change very much. You can nobly describe a networking device, not perfectly, but practically you could define a networking It has interfaces. It has speeds associated with it, you know, that sort of stuff. It's not hard to build, much harder to build a model of, a, of an application or code than it is to build a model of a network. One thing I found when I was at Cisco was that the devil was in the details when it came to understanding your network devices, that, you know, we had so many different versions of CLI out there, so many inconsistencies of how features were implemented, that if you really cared about how something was going to work, the, the modeling of devices was actually quite challenging. And that's why I kind of like this idea that you you get away from configuring boxes through CLI more to a world where you make an API request into a central controller, which then goes out and programs a bunch of well-defined programmable forwarding elements. Mm. And now you're, you've got a chance to actually understand what it is that you asked for and, and prove that you're going to get it. And this is, I think is going to play out in the cellular world as well, that I think we're going to see sort of SDN-like systems for cellular networks where 
instead of going and configuring these big refrigerator-sized things that come from you know Huawei and and you know Nokia Ericsson and so on. And Nokia, yeah, yeah, yeah. That you're going to actually have a bunch of software-based forwarding elements that sit out there next to the radio tower and a central controller that says, mm. okay, I need to support the following set of services, go make it happen. Yeah, we've already seen that. So we did a podcast recently with Intel and I remember a couple of years ago getting a presentation from Intel and they talked about basically the only analog part of a 5G base station will be where the radio signal comes in and gets converted to digital. And everything yeah. after that is software because That's they can right. do software signaling processing. They don't need DSPs because there's DS enough DSPs in the CPUs these days. There's actually like entire sub-functions on Intel CPUs and APIs for that where you can actually do DSP. And then once it's the signal is digitized, you can just pass it through a bunch of software functions and away you go. And yeah. there are uh, – ORAN is one organization and there are others who are defining entire 5G base stations in software. Now – have the telcos glommed onto that? No. Go back to our earlier discussion around we don't we can't accept too much change because we're not used to too much change. But they are definitely, you know, looking at ORAN as a leading implementation or as a reference, design reference, and saying, well, if everything can be software, what parts of this can I bring in as software today? Yeah. I really hope that the telcos are successful. I, I do sometimes worry that their you know, their appetite for for change is, is not quite what it needs to be and their sort of ability to execute doesn't quite line up with their aspirations. But, you know, ever since they started jumping on the NFE bandwagon almost 10 years ago, they've had sort of a good direction, which is we've got to stop this world of let's go buy the biggest refrigerator size box that we can from one of the three or four suppliers that we've always bought it from yeah. to a more, yeah, let's let's build it that looks more like a modern cloud, which means... Mix you know, little pieces of software running on yeah. commodity hardware with some kind of automated control that we can configure centrally. Well, it might be nominally commodity. It it would be recognizably con- persistent across any site. Might still have a brand name on the front, but you know, at the end of the day, it's not Coca Cola that you can only buy from Coca Cola. It's a fizzy drink that, and it's all interchangeably a fizzy drink sort of thing. What about DPUs? We've seen a lot of hype coming out of the industry these days with the idea that the NIC can be a computer and you have an ASIC there that does acceleration as well as a CPU memory cluster, which actually puts apps on the NIC and even more advanced concepts where the NIC becomes a whole BMC, a baseband controller for the whole computer itself. Do you see that transforming anything anyway? Yeah, I I kind of like this trend because at some level, it's the same thing that I was doing 30 years ago when I started my career at Belcor, where if you looked at the the thing that I built and called a gigabit NIC, it had quite a lot of CPU power on it. (laughs) And it was partly because I was doing research, I didn't know what I was doing. And so I thought, well, I better not like cast everything into silicon, I better have some flexibility to change the function of what actually gets done on the NIC. And so we've seen that sort of happen with the rise of smart NICs. And There was this sort of aha moment that I had a year or two ago when VMware said, oh, look, we can run an entire hypervisor out on the NIC. And my first thought was, well, why would you want to do such a crazy thing other than to prove that you can? Mm. But what I then subsequently realized is, well, actually, it's not that you want to run a hypervisor out there. It's that you want all the other things that the hypervisor does, things like network virtualization, storage virtualization, security functions. And the question is, well, why would you do them on the NIC and not do them on the server and the answer is because it's actually quite expensive to do them on the server and the job of the server should be to serve application workloads. And it's really just 
an idea of, you know, I call it horses for courses, that if you can build the right kind of hardware out on the NIC to do all the things that need to live on the NIC, which is, you know, encryption, other security features, network virtualization, storage features, yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, don't call it a NIC anymore, call it a DPU, but it's a, it's a, it's a customized, I still call you know, it's a customized piece of programmable yeah. hardware it's going to do all the stuff that doesn't need to be done in the server because the server's there to run applications. I think there's a one of the interesting things about DPU is how closely it it models the TCP/IP model. That is, everything happens at the edge. And what it also does at the same time is it actually matches the internal model of modern server CPUs. That is, it's not a monolithic CPU now; it's a chiplet model. And even though there's a single die, which is you know inch and a half square. On board of that is multiple small chips all connected by a bus architecture. And in effect, the DPU becomes the IO chiplet. It just happens to be in a separate card on a high-speed bus to the CPU. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it's it's a it's a very it's a very reasonable architecture. It's one of those things where you sort of ask yourself, like, what's the what's the right way to split functions between these, you know, between effectively the, the NIC and the and the server. And it's probably not completely obvious what the right answer is. Yeah. But like, I guess the thing I've learned through several decades is if you can give yourself some flexibility to make those decisions, you'll be happy you did because now you can sort of make a late binding and just say, oh, you know what? This is a function that really, really would work better if we weren't having to you know, st- stick it inside the server. Or this is a function that would be much better if we pulled it in the server. And to have that flexibility, I think, is the key idea. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm definitely quite bullish on, the, on this idea of sort of quite sophisticated programmable devices sitting right there at that sort of critical control point well, we've between got the them. network and like, the server. GPUs already demonstrated the viability of the offload for yeah. graphics. And the, to me, the DPU and the GPU are conceptually, though the implementations are wildly divergent, uh, the DPU has to support a much wider range. And I've read research papers where people are using the SmartNIC functionality, not the DPU, but SmartNIC functionality to do database lookups. And so they're actually writing hard-coded use of the APIs because they can use the ASIC, the binary matching functions of the SmartNIC to actually do a lookup in the database faster than you can on a general purpose CPU. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, the GPU is a good example where, over time, we figured out, or you know, not we, but you know, some people figured out the right way to put the right set of building blocks into GPUs so that they'd be really relatively easy to program, but also you know, very well optimized for a particular set of tasks. Some of which have very little to do with graphics, right? That mm. you know, there's a there's a famous paper on doing packet processing on GPUs because it turns out like yeah, they're actually not bad at doing that, even mm. though it's got nothing to do with you know shading polygons. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is another one. I I want to ask about the campus. We don't talk enough about the campus, and I think it's actually the part of networking which is likely to undergo the most change in the next five years. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's always been a bit of a, a black spot for me in that I've never really had a deep understanding of what goes on on campus networks. And I've got to think campus networking surely is going to be affected by the idea that lots of places are not going to have campuses anymore, right? Mm. You know, I'm sitting in my campus right now. How about you? Which is how I'm sitting in my house. Yeah, that's but right, yeah. The, uh, the brain, you know, I think the, the, campus the, was the, I was the one thing I think we can say with, with high confidence is that more and more it's going to be wireless and the question will be kind of what sort of wireless is being used and so, like, I've heard people 
I think I've even heard Pat Gelsinger say, you know, 5G is going to replace Wi-Fi. And I'm not sure I believe that's true. I find that deeply dubious. I I do think that there's there's going to be a richer set of wireless options available on the campus than we have today. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the wireless space is incredibly innovative at the moment. There's not just new ways of modulating and coding, but also, you know, the, 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 I mean, 5G itself, there's a ton of innovation just dealing with moving more functionality closer to the base stations so that you can do more low latency services. So like, I'm not a 5G maximalist, but I, I do think that there's so much innovation happening in the wireless space that the sort of one safe bet I can make about campuses is they're going to benefit from that. Yeah. I did a podcast with a, a senior executive from Intel and set, and his job was I set him up to say, I, I do not believe that 5G will exist in the enterprise. Convince me otherwise. And mm-hmm. the, I think the general tack of what they're saying is that 5G is a better wireless than Wi-Fi. And I think there's some truth to that, right, in the sense that you can put up a 5G tower and you can start to use smartphones as handsets linked to that 5G tower, and that is a viable point. So if you have a campus, you could issue everybody with a 5G handset or, you know, an iPhone, and it happens to connect to a base station. The question becomes what happens when that handset goes off-site? Now, if you're on a mine in central Australia and you're 500 kilometres from anything, like the nearest petrol station, then setting up a 5G tower and sharing access to resources that way makes sense because... Uh, 5G devices to monitor, you know, who's where. You know, if John's over there driving a truck and the truck and he stops moving, I need to know if there's a man down detection system. And having a 5G for that makes sense because Wi-Fi has such poor propagation characteristics. And none of the new spectrum that they've issued to Wi-Fi addresses the limited spectrum. It all sort of assumes that you're in a high-rise building in a in a capital city or you're in a house, right? So there is a niche use case. The question is whether it's a general purpose niche case. And until laptops get 5G connectivity, I'm not at 100%, I mean desktops for that matter, that it's got any application outside of specific markets. Yeah, as I say, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not completely convinced either, but I, I, I guess I just see you know, all kinds of interesting things going on in the wireless space. It's maybe sort of one example is Helium. I don't know if you followed that. Yeah, but it's, that's... You well, know, yeah. it's basically a blockchain powered uh, wireless community service and uh it's it's kind of it's, it's an amazing collection of buzzwords into a single project but it yeah, actually they started looks off like as a dog tracking service and now they're trying to right. turn it into a non-specific it just reeks of blockchain scam more than anything else you know, i think the thing about that like we probably don't want to go too deep into the blockchain um weeds at, at this late hour but i think the <laughs> the the, the, the Anytime somebody's doing anything with blockchain, that's going to obviously going to be a natural reaction is to think, am I getting scammed here? Yeah. I think the thing which is interesting to me about about Helium is the the idea that that it's doing something very different than most other blockchains, which is you you, you don't get paid for going solving some useless puzzle, you get paid for doing something actually quite useful, which is providing wireless coverage. And yes. so, you know, while most of the big blockchains are kind of moving away from proof of work towards something like proof of stake, you know, Helium's doing proof of coverage. And, you know, I've read it, the it, white paper from the, the Helium guys. It's It's got some solid, you know, sort of research that, underpinning like, it. 
I believe in crypto and blockchains as there has the technology's got potential use cases, but at this point, people seem to be doing things on blockchain that seem to be largely pointless. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, like I was there's no doubt was, we're we're at the we're at the Dutch tulip phase with blockchain, yeah. and you know the the question is is there still some good good stuff in there and. Yeah, I'd be reluctant to bet against it, but I, I'd also be very reluctant to r- risk much of my own money in, in that space. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult. Um, there's definitely something there. I don't want to throw the whole thing under the bus and say there's nothing there. But equally, Helium basically relies on exploiting other people's networks and giving nothing back to the underlying network, which is an odd way or, or a very Silicon Valley approach, which is to exploit a gap in the market and take yes, away well, and else. I think that like I'm not saying that helium is going to succeed. I just no. thought to me it was such an off the wall idea. Yeah, to say oh we could combine community wireless with blockchain. Like uh, who would have thought? And and to me it's just it's a sign of how much innovation is going on in the wireless space. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I definitely think so. I think there's so much innovation around Wi-Fi, but the challenge now for most of the Wi-Fi is that all of the new features that they've got are now supply chain constrained. I believe my understanding is from people that I've spoken to is that the ASICs that drive Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6E are highly constrained and could be up to 100 weeks uh, lead time for some vendors. Mm. That is not a happy, you know, that is is not a good time for customers. Do you think the supply chain will cause, does it have any impacts, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think the... It's good. To, it's good time to be a software business, right? Because then you <laughs> yeah, don't have yeah. so many supply chain worries. But yeah, the yeah the supply chain concerns seem to be affecting everything. I mean, you're living in the UK, right? So you know yeah. all about supply supply chain affecting your Christmas turkey. It's uh, you know there's there's so many supply chain issues right now. Yeah. Um, anything that depends on something that's hard to get, obviously, is going to have challenges. Well, it's actually going in multiple directions. We have the freight problem, which is where it started, and now it's, there are energy problems. There's insufficient energy distribution and the restart of industry has consumed more energy. That's a very broad statement. And then, of course, uh, that has created various other problems as well. For example, China has recently shut down power to do significant areas of the manufacturing and they're now only able to operate five days a week instead of seven days a week or something like that. Um, so that I, I think interestingly, what we might see is the rise of SDN that works with what you have. So instead of having to say like, go and take all of your existing infrastructure, throw it out and then start again, what, what I've heard vendors call a gold field, which is because <laughs> <laughs> you can go in and sell everything again. I think the rise of SDN companies who can do stuff either over the top, as you said, in software or companies who can do SDN orchestration of the legacy or the in-place kit, the brownfield, is where you want to be because you get the operational benefits of software, but maybe you don't get some of the slickness of, you know, if only I bought brand new hardware, which had a brand new operating system, which had an API designed to modern standards, maybe it would be better. And I'm actually not seeing that. I don't think the actual underlying network hardware has changed or that the newer operating systems have done anything significantly transformational. Yeah, I mean, if I were to maybe pick one point where I think the hardware is really interesting, it's the it's the rise of the sort of P4 programmable hardware mm. that I think 
I, I agree with almost everything you were just saying uh, in the sense that I, I love when you can deploy a new solution that runs on your existing hardware and that's exactly what NSX did. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think that sort of the, the counter example that I'm starting to get some enthusiasm for is this idea that the next generation of Switch ASICs will be P4 programmable, which basically means we'll have more ability to change the, the forwarding functions than we've ever had before, while at the same time also doing all the other good things that STN gives you. So that's kind of my one optimism about the future of switching hardware is that it will be a lot more programmable. I think the interesting part about P4 perhaps is not that we'll do everything with P4, but that it might go back to the initial idea behind SDN, which is some small percentage of traffic through a device would be P forward. Like the original idea behind OpenFlow wasn't that the whole device's forwarding table would be replaced with OpenFlow, but that it would be just some small part of the traffic could be manipulated with OpenFlow tables for research purposes. Yeah. That's probably where it comes in. Yeah. I mean, I think there's... There's a lot of different things that could be done with P4. I guess the, one of the things I find interesting about it is, you know, I mean, OpenFlow was was a very, very much a version one attempt at, at making programmable hardware and it had all kinds of drawbacks. Mm. And I think with P4, the lessons have been learned of like, oh, yeah, we didn't quite get it right with OpenFlow, but now we actually can build something that's as cost-effective as your old fixed-function hardware but that has a programming interface that's quite general purpose and with an appropriate tool chain, you'll be able to do pretty useful things. Mm. It's still an open question in my mind, exactly how much do people need to change the functions in their forwarding hardware beyond what comes from the vendor. So this might might still prove to be more interesting for the sort of AWS level of customer than, than for the masses. But at least I think we're getting to a point where the idea that your your you know, your hardware is a fixed function ASIC that comes from Broadcom and you can never change it, we might be getting beyond that to something that's a bit more flexible. The thing that strikes me is that we've talked a lot about P4 as implementing functions in the network, but at the same time we're seeing the DPU come along so I can just implement them in the endpoint. So Yes, and exactly. And and in fact, you know, we should probably see P4 programmable DPUs too. Yeah. But I think the Again, this is the thing which I'd say going back to my early days is if you can avoid making an early decision about where to put a function and make that a late decision, that's going to make your life better because you can figure out where things should go. Just like, you know, we're sort of reallocating functions between HTTP and TCP after 30 years. It's nice to be able to move functions around and say, oh, yeah, it actually would be better if that sat, you know, here rather than in the network or it'd be better if it sat in the network. So that's that's the advantage of having the hardware be programmable. Yeah, it's and that that DPU, the one of the things that I have to keep reminding myself about DPUs is that that is fundamentally where we were with hard with vendor appliances 10 years ago. Many of the load balancers, proxy servers, firewalls were bog standard commodity hardware with a fancy NIC and somebody had written to the API on the fancy NIC. And effectively we're now getting general purpose DPUs. The weakness I see in DPUs isn't the P4 API or the DPDK API. It's the operating system that runs on the NIC. And if I have a CPU memory cluster on there, what operating system runs on there? Does it something that comes from a company like Aruba's Pansando? Or is it something that comes from open source, more like the Linux model, and everybody's running the same, and it's just the applications on top of it that are consistent? Yeah, I think it's too early to know, I would say, in that in that space. Yeah. 
But you're, you're, you're like me. You think that's probably the way forward. There's definitely a, uh, something there. Yeah, I, 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 I would say yes, absolutely. I think there's something there. And, I, I, you know, it's this sort of belief that when you build more flexible hardware, people find ways to make use of it. You know, I spent so much time at Cisco wishing that our, our routers could have more flexible hardware, but we were always just like scrambling to get them to go at whatever ridiculous number of bits per second they needed to make the next generation of, of, of lasers. But, uh, yeah, in general, I think if you can make the hardware be more flexible and keep up with the, the bandwidth requirements and meet the price point, then you're going to end up with a better product. Well, we're running out of time, Bruce. I, I've managed to air all of my crazy ideas and you've been willing to run along them. Very generous uh, in not telling me I'm a clown, but there you go. I do wonder, however, what is it that you're going to be working on next? Yeah, so Larry and I have a long list of projects that we're working on. And so the the short version of it is we've got a book on TCP congestion control that's in development right now. We've got a book on SDN that we've kind of done one release, but we're doing a fairly substantial update to it. Uh, we've got a book on 5G that's probably due for another update. And we've, just, we've got a long list of other books that we want to write. Mm -hmm. uh, we're thinking about maybe network security or systems approach is another possibility. Uh, so we're just kind of really trying to look at the areas where the world needs more information about how systems work and how to think about those systems, how to design them. And that's effectively, I think, going to keep us busy until we, uh, you know, until we really retire. <laughs> so it's, it is a retirement, like it is, it's something that you're working on now instead of going back into the, into the harsh corporate world, like the world of... Absolutely. Yeah. I, I had a chat with some folks from VMware yesterday about my my retirement and it's it's basically, this is my retirement. It's like, I work on what I want to, when I want to, I exercise, you know, for an hour or two, or two every day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is the, uh, this is the long-term plan. Yeah. This is it. I'm not coming back. I've done, I've yeah. got what I wanted. So now people who are listening, if you want to read the systems approach books that Larry and Bruce have put together, go to systemsapproach.org. I should have mentioned this much earlier in the show. They are freely available for you to read online and to download. You can, of course, buy physical versions of those if you want. And they're also published on GitHub as well, right? That's correct. So you, not only can you download them, you can download the source and edit it and make your own version and you can make your own contributions, which we encourage you to do. Right. So if you are an academic, you can take these books and carry them into your course with no charge. Um, and you yeah. could even reach out and talk to Bruce, I imagine. Absolutely. I, I talk to academics all the time. And uh, here's a, uh, just a quick fun story. Yeah, sure. Um, um, an academic reached out to me and said, I just wanted to let you know, I took your book, which is about 600, 800 pages in the printed version, and I wanted to make it readable by dyslexics. So I changed the font. Yeah. That turned it into about a thousand page book, but I could just produce the PDF using your tool chain. So I've just given the PDF to all my students and even the non-dyslexic students really like it. So to me, that was open source at its best, where somebody found a way to sort of remix our work in a way that made it better for students. And we would never have thought of that on our own. No, well, why would you? I have enough problems just working with fonts in in normal books. Like I read fiction books quite a bit in my spare time. And I always, the thing I like about my ebook readers being able to choose the font I want, not the font that some artsy fartsy publisher in New York thinks I should be reading it in. Yeah, we really like the idea that, you know, we're, we're not here to try to 
make a lot of money by selling a lot of books. We're trying to produce information that's the best quality it can be. Yeah. And we love the idea of people taking our information, remixing it, contributing to it, using it in a way that helps them, you know, pick this chapter from this book, pick a different chapter from another book, whatever it works to build the, the right educational material. So we, we, we're sort of viewing this as our contribution to, uh, to the education of the next generation. Which is pretty fantastic. And it is a great textbook. If Even if you're a senior professional, I went through it and it gave me a, it helped me to refocus on some of the areas. It's, it is a fundamentals book, but some of the SDN books actually got me thinking. You've also got the software-defined networks, a systems approach, 5G mobile networks. That's got a lot of arcane stuff about 5G networking in there. And so if you're interested in learning about the uh, the basic architectures of a RAN, a radio access network and the edge and some of the components that are inside it, so you can uh, have an understanding of what a vendor is flogging you around in 5G services, definitely worth a read. I think it's great work. Thanks so much for putting it out there for everybody. Well, it's uh, yeah, as I say, it's a, it's a passion project and we're, we're very much enjoying it. Okay. And if people want to find out more about you, where can they find you on the internet? You can follow me on Twitter and uh, you should be able to figure that out. I'm actually very easy to find on Google because if you can spell my last name correctly, there's yeah. very few people who spell it that way. And the right way to spell it is D-A-V-I-E. Right? Correct. And that's pretty unusual for a Davey. Bruce Davey, thanks so much for joining us here on the Packet Pushes today and being part of the future of networking. As always, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts on the Packet Pushes Network over on our website at packetpushes.net. Please Tell your friends about it. I've really enjoyed today's show. I've managed to take a bunch of my crackpot theories and throw them at an expert. He's been very generous and hasn't slapped me down all that often, but it's great to know whether your ideas are sane or not. And that is the idea of what we're trying to get at here on Packet Pushers. We're not telling you how to think. We're helping you to think for yourself. And as always, remember that too much technology would never be enough.